There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app. And the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods. And it just allows the users to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the gearbox. And what the gearbox is, it is a an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the go wild community is using in the field what products they're using but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products there's you, there's a shopping function on it so Check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to, and you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. Keith Catfish Sutton is a longtime outdoor writer. He wrote for ESPN. For 10 years, traveled all over the world fishing. But the way I knew Keith was as an Arkansas kid, he, I always saw his name in every sporting magazine that had anything to do with Arkansas. You'd see Keith Sutton. He was a hunter, but primarily he was a fisherman. And he is known as one of the country's top cat fishermen. This conversation with Keith, very interesting. 
you'll hear about how he caught a giant undiscovered fish in the Amazon River. You'll also hear about a shootout that he was involved in. And you'll also hear about how he was mauled by an animal, a very large animal. I'm not going to give it away. But I felt like I uncovered a jewel when I was talking to Keith. Or I didn't uncover him. I just didn't know Keith that well. I knew his writing. This is the first time I met Keith. And uh, really interesting conversation with a great man. W Hound Supply. These guys are up in Yakult, Washington. And they are the nation's top hound supply company. Anything you need for hounds, for any sporting dogs, for your labs, for your beagles, for your squirrel dogs, for whatever you need, they've got your hound stuff. They specialize in Garmin equipment. You call these folks on the phone, you're going to be talking to one of them. They're going to know the products and they're going to be able to help you. Check out our buddies at W Hound Supply. We're actually going up there to visit them and you're going to hear some future stuff they're going to be doing with W. Northwoods Bear Products. It's time. It's go time. Fall bear hunting is upon us. And I just talked to my old buddy James Lawrence today and we're getting we're getting queued up to start our fall bear baiting routine. And it doesn't make any sense to not use Northwoods Bear Products. We've used this stuff for years. It's the best bear scent products that I have used. I like their Gold Rush. You've heard me say that a thousand times, but they also have powder-based scents. They have other types of spray scents, and uh, you'll want to check those guys out. CVA muzzleloaders. Muzzleloading is one of the probably most overlooked weapons that gives you a very good opportunity to take game, whether you're hunting deer, whether you're hunting bear, whether you're hunting elk. The muzzleloader season is a great time to harvest an animal. CVA has been in business since 1971. They make the best muzzleloaders on the market, all the way up from some super high-end, very accurate models, all the way down to their entry-level models, which are which are very high quality. They have Bergara barrels. And check out CVA. They've got some great stuff, and that's what I'm going to be shooting this fall. And lastly, leave us a review on iTunes. And take a screenshot, and you'll have a chance to win some Northwoods Bear products. We sent out, uh, we had two winners this last time that we did this. So leave us a review. We're going to nudge you towards the more stars and less stars, but that's your decision. And screenshot and send that screenshot to us through Instagram or through Facebook Messenger or through info at bearhalfandhunting.com. And we're going to send somebody some Northwoods Bear products. You're going to enjoy this podcast with my buddy, Keith Catfish Sutton. Keith Catfish Sutton. Is that what they call you, Keith? That's what they call me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what all my friends call me. Uh, how, did, how did you get the name Catfish? Back when I was working for the Game and Fish Commission here in Arkansas, uh, my boss was Steve Wildman Wilson. Okay. And he started calling me Wildman and Catfish. Yep, yep. He he knew I liked the catfish, and he just started calling me that, and it stuck. Yeah. Uh, And uh, as I uh, built my writing career, I thought, that's a pretty good uh, way to – 
get my name out there. People don't remember Keith Sutton, but they remember Catfish. Catfish. And I learned that wherever I went back then, I was traveling a lot, going all over the world, fishing mostly, and didn't matter if I was in Mexico or South America, if I told the people my name was Catfish, they'd get a big grin on their <laughs> face. And even uh, when I'd go back 10 years later, they'd remember They'd remember Catfish. catfish. And so well, it was good. Hey, when I pulled up here, I I was wanting to make sure I was at the right place, and I saw a big sticker on the back of a truck that said, Catfish, fear me. And I was like, I'm at the right place. <laughs> yep, you knew you were here. Then. Yeah. That's right. A lot well, of catfish stuff. Keith, tell me uh, – well, let me let – me, let you know how I know you. I know you from years and years since I was a kid reading <laughs> your stuff in Arkansas right. outdoor magazines. For real. Like you're in in my mind you're a you're a legend around here. You know, you've probably written more about Arkansas outdoor stuff than anybody that I know, at least in the mainstream media stuff. And I know that your outdoor career was bigger than just Arkansas, but for a lot of years, that's really all I was focused on was Arkansas stuff, and I knew you from that. Um, w- walk me through, like, your career, like, just kind of what you've done and just kind of an overview. Okay. I'll try to give you the, the short view. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty long. Uh, <laughs> I just told you I'm 64 years old, and I started writing when I was in my 20s. I mm-hmm. didn't know – I wanted to be a writer. I went to college at Arkansas State University and got a degree in wildlife management. And uh, I finished my degree in 1978 and went to work for Arkansas Parks and Tourism as a naturalist Mm. and uh, took people out and taught them about nature and did nature hikes and programs. And uh, while I was doing that, a gentleman I worked with named Larry Lohman he was a botanist on the staff. I was more of a zoologist. But he did a local newspaper column on edible and medicinal plants that everybody mm. just loved. And I loved it. And uh, I went to the editor at that paper and said, uh, how would you like to have a column on wildlife and not just plants? I'd like to do one on wildlife. And he said, sure. You know, I can't pay you anything, but if you'd mm-hmm. like to do it, So what I did, I worked out a deal with my boss at the park where every week I'd do a column as part of my job at the park, and my columns would include the programs we had in the park that week. Mm. What I did was a pen and ink drawing of a different animal every week and just wrote about that animal. Are you an artist? uh, Not so much, uh, but fair I was back then. I just don't do it much now. Yeah. But uh, it got me started, and uh, a lot of people just loved that column. And while I was doing it, I did it for several years. Uh, a magazine called Fins and Feathers came to Arkansas. Hmm. Uh, you have to be. Now that's not the current. What's the fin, feather, and fur? No, nope. it's not different that one. one. No, different okay. magazine. Gotcha. Uh, gone now. But back then, they had uh, magazines in 50 states, and they had just started in Arkansas. Somebody told them I wrote outdoor stuff, and they asked if I'd be interested in writing hunting and fishing stories. And that's how I got my start uh, in the magazine business. When you were in your 20s. Yep, I was in my 20s. I started doing that, and they paid me. (laughs) And it was like, (laughs) wow, you can get paid? Yeah. Uh, That was pretty awesome, and uh, I 
started writing about hunting and fishing uh, because it was an Arkansas-based magazine, that edition, uh, I wrote about the Arkansas outdoors. And uh, that was about the time I went to work at the Game and Fish Commission as well. Uh, I was the publications editor there when I started and became the magazine editor, and I spent 20 years at the Game and Fish Commission okay. doing all sorts of publications, primarily Arkansas Wildlife Magazine. Okay. Uh, I edited that for, I was the editor for about 10 years. Now, did you have a, a background in uh, journalism or anything? No background. I okay. didn't know what Just I was learned doing. it on the job. I, I was lucky uh, when I started with that newspaper. The editor there was a very good mentor. He, he taught me a lot. And then uh, when I got in magazines, that was a little bit different. And I I always felt like I was out of place, like I didn't know really if I was doing right or Mm. not. And so I started looking for mentors, and it took a while to find some good ones, but I got some good mentors. Uh, Several of the guys that worked with me at Game of Fish had been through journalism school. They shared what they knew and taught me a lot. And I just decided, you know, I really love this. Writing is is my deal. I like it. Yeah. Uh, it was hard to find a job in wildlife management then. All those jobs were taken up, and those people stayed in them for 30 years, and there weren't a lot of openings. So the writing got me in kind of through the back door where I yeah. could teach other people what I knew. And uh I worked real hard to learn writing. I, what what did your mentors because what what did your mentors talk to you about? I mean like was it like uh practical stuff like grammar? Was it structure of how to communicate? Like what what would they what kind yeah, of input? You know, I I did pretty well in English in high school and all, yeah. but uh I just felt like I I didn't know all the mechanics and they taught me a lot of that. They what I did, I would sit with them and hand them an article and say, edit this and then tell me why you did what you did. Right. And so they would hand back some of my stories just red penciled all over. And they they were honest with me. Fortunately for me, they were brutally honest. This is terrible. You got to quit doing this. Or mm. this is good. You need to do that. And I always liked critique. And I, and I got a lot of it yeah. from those guys. They enjoyed doing it. And I tried to listen. You know, these guys uh, were good writers themselves. Uh, Jim Spencer, for example, mm-hmm. who's one of my favorite writers and one of my best friends. Uh, Jim didn't have any qualms about sitting down and red mm. penciling my stuff and showing me how to do better. But what I really did was try to read good writing. I mm. tried to, when I found something that I enjoyed, I knew other people enjoyed, I tried to study it and learn why Why did I enjoy that? What, what was it about that that made it good? And uh, I would break an article apart like that and try mm. to see what what is it that makes this guy so good. How would you characterize your writing based upon like this knowledge that you were very intentional and observed others and introspective. Like how would you, how would you describe your writing? I think I could describe it, but I want to hear you describe it. Well, one of the things I always tried to do was find stories nobody else had ever written. Uh, Mm. I felt like that was important. Uh, When I, 
started working with magazines, I saw the same kind of stories all over again, all the time. Uh, how to catch bass on a spinner bait, and uh, what gun should you use for deer hunting. And they were done over and over and over again. And right. I got bored with that. I always was looking everywhere I went for some type of story nobody had written. That's what I wanted to write. I wanted my writing to stand out from everybody else. And uh, catfishing kind of got me in that door too because okay. back then nobody was writing much about catfish. Mm. And I decided, well, I need some kind of a niche to to be mine. You know, yeah. uh, there were guys who were great deer hunting riders and there were guys who were great riders about other things bass fishing or whatever nobody was writing about catfish and i loved catfishing it was an arkansas thing i grew up doing and so i thought that can be my niche and i think it'll be a good niche because i had enough foresight to to think ahead that's going to be more popular someday mm. and i and fortunately i was right uh, yeah when i started doing it trying to sell a story on catfishing, I just it was almost impossible. Nobody mm. wanted to buy those stories. But then uh, it kind of started changing, and we started seeing more and more uh, writing and TV shows and uh, just all sorts of things. Just about more interest catfish. in it. Yeah, the interest grew. I don't think it so much grew as it became more visible. Yeah. Uh, People were doing out. it, but the media wasn't covering it. Yeah, and I yeah. bet your work had a lot to do with that, Keith. Well, I hope it did, and, and I feel like maybe it did. I I had a good opportunity uh, early on to write a book about catfishing. It sold really well. The publisher was happy, and I was happy, and then eventually wrote five books about catfishing. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of other guys doing that now. I I, I hope I kind of ushered in a lot of that era where people quit looking at not just catfish, but a variety of other species too as trash fish. Yeah. People always thought of them kind of as trash fish. That's not the case anymore. And yeah. for good reasons, we realize uh, those fish get big, they're abundant, they're good to eat. Uh, there's all kind of reasons to enjoy catfishing, and now more and more people, I think, do. And I yeah. hope I did help to yeah. usher that in. You know, as you're telling me this story, it reminds me a lot of my own story with Bear, Keith. Exactly. For <laughs> real. Like, you know, know, 10 years ago when, when I started writing and talking about bears, yep. especially here in Arkansas, and now you had written about bears, and I want to get to that later. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not saying – I sure wasn't the first one, but – I, you know, it was kind of like this animal that not many people paid much attention exactly. to. And, and boy, today there's a lot of national outdoor media focused on bears. Yes. And it's partly because they're doing so well ecologically. I mean, bear populations are yep. expanding and what, but anyway, I just, I connect with no. your story that you, well, you I honed out a you niche. for that reason. I've read a lot of what you've written about bears and, uh, uh, you're one of those guys that immediately comes to mind when I think about bears. You're one of those few people who have made that your niche. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important uh, as a writer that you do have some kind of a niche if you're going right. to make a living at it. And yeah. uh, I did for a lot of years. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's 
changed a lot. I I worked with Game and Fish for about twenty years. Yeah, let's get back on the career yeah. track there. Yeah, 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 I retired there after about twenty years because okay. I was working toward a full time freelance career, and I started freelancing full time uh, in the early two thousands. Okay, and uh, I freelanced full time for about seven or eight years, and uh, um, during those years. Uh, I really had a lot of fun. Mm. I traveled a lot. Uh, you would have been writing for national magazines. I was. What really got my name out there probably was I spent about 10 years writing a, a travel adventure column for ESPN.com. Okay. Uh, so it was it, just published online? Yes. It was okay. all online. Uh, I was real fortunate. Uh, Steve Bowman uh, here in Arkansas was one of the people who I worked with a lot. He was our local newspaper guy, one of the papers, and we got to be friends. And uh, he eventually went on to do a lot of work with ESPN. And when they started their website, he was looking for writers, and he called me up and said, hey, I'd like you to do something every week, if possible, for ESPN. And it was like this amazing opportunity mm. i said what do you want and he said i don't know come up with an idea <laughs> that's uh, what you want to ask her to say isn't that's it? exactly what you want and I, I went back to him and said i want to do a travel column i i had read a lot of stuff uh by some guys who wrote with outside magazine and i remember them talking about when they started outside they sat down and tried to decide what was going to be in it. And one of the guys said, I'm going to be the guy that travels to all these exotic destinations mm. and writes about that. Yeah. And I thought, nah, it'd be cool if I could do that hunting and fishing wise. Yeah. So I went back to Bowman and I said, how about let me do this? And he said, sure. He said, I can't pay for all your travel. I said, I'll tell you what, you give me some ESPN stationery, let me use that to line up my own trips, and I could make it work. Mm. And uh, for 10 years, I did. And it was amazing what exposure that gave me that I never dreamt I could have. There mm. were days when I would get thousands of views on a story, uh, tens of thousands. Mm. And... Uh, people would stop me on the street because they saw that little postage stamp size picture of my face on my columns and they would recognize me and I couldn't dream that could happen, Yeah, but it did. It was yeah. uh, amazing. The amount of, uh, popularity that column what was the column called it was called uh out there with keith sutton out there with out keith there sutton. with keith catfish sutton keith catfish uh, sutton it was out there so that was from 2000 about 2010 yeah, it or was something? somewhere in that neighborhood yeah. uh, when i did all that uh eventually uh espn got bought out by disney and bigger companies they, and quit, they quit doing, doing hunting it. stuff yeah, during that time, I also got to do uh, about, uh, oh, I did 56 TV shows with them as well. Really? Short TV shows in between mm. the bigger ones. But that also got me a lot of exposure, and it was fun to do. And during, there, Is there any place people could go look at those now? Are they no, online anywhere? No, they're no longer online. Really? I wish they were. Yeah, I yeah. Sometimes they, they catalog that stuff on uh, YouTube or something. Now, the the 
columns I wrote, you can probably still find. Probably I still think. search they, those. They still have uh, some of those up on the ESPN website. But yeah. you got to dig deep to find them. Yeah. But where where did you get to travel to? I traveled all over the Western Hemisphere from uh, Alaska and Canada down to uh, Brazil and Venezuela. Mm. Uh, spent a lot of time. Now, see, the- I didn't know that, Keith. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't was, know that uh, about you. It was uh, the glory years, I call them. I was younger then, and I could do all that. Uh, you know, it was grueling sometimes. I'd be gone for weeks a lot of times. Uh, uh, people came to me and offered me opportunities that were once in a lifetime. Uh, a guy I met down in Mexico said, where would you go? We were fishing in Mexico. And he said, where would you go if you could go anywhere in the world tomorrow? And I said, oh, I always wanted to go to the Amazon in Brazil. And within a month, he had us a trip lined up. Oh, we went darn. to Brazil, and I just fell in love with it. What did you do down there? Uh, peacock bass fish? Uh, peacock bass, but more than that, catfishing. Uh, really? It, it was an In the Amazon River? Yeah, huge catfish. Really? I mean, fish that get several hundred pounds. Was, and, did you catch a big one down there? I caught several big ones while How we big? were down there. The biggest I landed was around 100 pounds. No way. Uh, I've had some that were a lot bigger. Now, would that be line. bigger? That would be bigger than anything you would have caught here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, what 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 I've catfish here that get big. that big? Uh, blue cats Blues. and flatheads both get that big here. Okay, uh, but down there, these fish, the hundred pounders, they they call them fry. Is that <laughs> right? Babies, they that species gets over six hundred pounds. Uh, you just so can't hardly catch that fish on a rod and reel, can you? It's almost impossible, to be honest with you. It's the hardest fighting thing I've ever experienced. And, and wow. I've caught a lot of big fish. I, I spent a lot of years. That, that got to be my deal. I wanted to catch big fish, hmm. mostly freshwater. Uh, I've caught sturgeon that were 10 feet long. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I fished for a lot of big fish. And, uh uh, fished a lot in salt water too, uh, and uh, it was just awesome catching those giants. And that was kind of my deal, was yeah. being able to do that. So I, I went to Brazil, I think, five times, uh, spent some time in Venezuela, and really tried to develop a business where we were carrying people down there to try mm. to catch some of these monster fish. We'd take 16 anglers at a time. I had an agreement with a company that had a boat in Brazil. Uh, they would let me book my clients, and uh, so you were a were you a booking agent or an out? Would you call I yourself an outfitter? Booking agent uh, would be the best way of saying okay. it. But uh, I would uh, write stories and say, "Hey, you want to go with me to Brazil and try to catch a six hundred pound catfish?" Mm-hmm. We'd book the trips full, but. What happened was 9-11. Uh, mm. It just ended it uh, just abruptly. Mm. Uh, I had a trip lined up with 16 people to go down, and when 9-11 happened, everybody uh, canceled their trip. And, mm. and it kind of put a damper on the whole industry for several years. Nobody really yeah. wanted to go on those trips until things kind of got back to normal. Yeah. Uh, so I, I quit doing that. And in the meantime, uh, I went to work with the future fisherman foundation, uh, was executive director, uh, of that organization, which has programs like hooked on fishing, not on drugs. Most people have heard Mm. of that. And, uh, it was a temporary job from the beginning. I helped move it under the umbrella of another organization 
and then uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do, and uh, I took. And that would have brought us up to. Uh, that brings you up to ten years ago, okay. and uh, I went to work uh, with Arkansas Farm Bureau, working in their PR department, doing photography and writing. Okay, and that's where I'm at now, and hopefully in a couple of years I'll retire there and get back to traveling and fishing and hunting a little bit more. Yeah. Wow, that's a uh, that's the short version of all this. Yeah, best I can. Well, the the international travel I I didn't know about because, like I said, I I knew you as uh, just a uh, the Arkansas guy when it came to well, to fishing Ar- and hunting stories. Arkansas's Arkansas folks are the ones that were my folks. You know, they yeah. they stuck with me all those years and enjoyed reading what I was doing, but largely because. Most of what I did, even now, most of what I still do is about Arkansas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just love this state. We've got some wonderful opportunities for hunting and fishing and all other kinds of outdoor recreation. And I guess it goes back to those years with parks and tourism. You know, I always enjoyed sharing with other people the outdoor right. stuff and uh, teaching them how to enjoy it as well, and uh, Arkansas's yeah. my place. You know, I wanna I wanna come back to Arkansas, but I can't I can't skip over uh, the Amazon River. I got one more question for you. <laughs> sure. Did you ever, as much as you were down there, did you ever run into any sketchy situations on the river with with <laughs> I mean, just any like some exciting wild thing that happened down there? In in the Amazon, really, not so much. Mm. Uh, the places we went were very remote, um, not a lot of people around. Uh, I never really had anything out of the ordinary really? okay. happen down there. But in Mexico, I, I had a lot of crazy things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got held up by bandits one time coming out from a remote lake down there. Really? Uh they stopped got, your car and stood you up? What, yeah, what'd they, do? they rolled boulders into the road and stopped the whole caravan, all of us coming out of this lake in the middle of the night. They, what'd they put in the road? Boulders. Boulders. Yeah, oh. they rolled boulders down in the road. Fortunately, we had some armed guards with us, which they didn't know. But there was a shootout. No way. Uh, it, it got really sketchy. Whoa, whoa. Uh, well, we got to stop there for just a second. So you're, how many vehicles are in this there caravan? There were four vehicles, I think, all And so together. you're not driving, I presume. No, no. So you're riding in one of the cars. Yeah. The yeah. cars stop. Yeah, everything what, stopped. It did, was they, literally, did they try to rob you? Yeah, the uh, the we were coming out of the lake at an unusual time. Usually they come out in the daytime, but the fishing had been so good, <laughs> our group agreed, let's stay as late as we can and we'll drive out in the middle of the night. We can sleep on the way to the airport. And so it was literally the middle of the night. It was one or two o'clock in the morning probably. Mm. And uh, we headed out and... Uh, uh, of course, I knew we had these two guys with us who were armed. Uh, I had asked when I first met them. In fact, I'd fished with them all week. They liked catfish, believe mm. it or not. So their names were Julio and Julio. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> as we were uh, coming out, the whole caravan just stopped. And I asked the driver, why are we stopping? And then gunshots erupted. Oh, wow. He said, banditos. <laughs> 
So he told <laughs> that's everybody. That's a universal. Uh, yeah, that's a that's yeah, a universal that's word there. He told everybody get down in the floorboard. You know, he didn't know what was going to happen either. And uh, I mean, my first instinct was to grab my camera and see if I could get pictures. And then I <laughs> the decided there were so many you. bullets flying around. I decided that wasn't a good idea. And we all uh, got down in the floorboard, and a lot of shots rang out, and uh, we didn't really know what was happening. Mm. And then suddenly somebody tapped on the window with a gun barrel. Oh, but fortunately it was metal one to of glass. Our, yeah, but fortunately it was one of our armed guards, and, and he said, Senior Catfish, that's very exciting, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he said, we scared the banditos away. So oh, fortunately wow. they did, but we all had to get out. So nobody got shot? Nobody got shot that we know of. Luckily the banditos uh, weren't very good shots. Yeah, yeah, so... You know, those were the kind of stories uh, that made my ESPN column. Oh. I mean, over the years, there were all kinds we of We could crazy probably search that out. online and find that story. Yeah, probably so. Senior Catfish and uh, the Mexican Banditos. Is that right? Oh, man. <laughs> we're gonna, I'm totally going to search for that. Yeah, it's out there somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, most of the time, uh, you know, people always asked about Brazil. Uh, weren't you scared being in those remote places? I was never scared. It was totally the opposite, really. Mm. Uh, I'm scared going downtown Little Rock at night, but I'm not scared being on the Amazon yeah. 600 miles from the nearest town because there's nobody there. Yeah, uh, That's what made it exciting. You're in a place, few people visit, few people are there, few people live there. And so you have all these amazing opportunities, especially fishing-wise, uh, that are just incredible. Mm. And uh, I, w I was never—I never felt in danger. I mean, mm. we saw things that could have been dangerous. We saw fifteen-foot anacondas and mm. uh, things like that, but I, I never felt like we were ever in any danger down yeah. there. I yeah. loved going to Brazil. The people down there are really wonderful, and there's nowhere in the world got better fishing. I mean, is that right? It's incredible. Peacock bass. At the time, nobody was really promoting the catfishing down there, and I didn't know my first trip down there that there were huge catfish. Really. And when I found out, it's like, why am I fishing for peacock bass when I can catch a <laughs> Give 600 me some chicken pound? liver and a yeah, treble hook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, my second trip, on my first trip, uh, something happened that was kind of incredible. I was in the boat with a, a, a friend from Brazil, and we saw this massive fish that was probably seven or eight feet across, round as a circle, that swam under the boat. And I'm like, what the heck was that? And he called it a haya. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it means ray. Oh. But it was seven or feet, seven or eight feet around. And it, I didn't in think they water. had those in freshwater. You, were, you weren't close had, to the ocean? No, nowhere close. Freshwater we 3,000 miles from the ocean. Oh, wow. And so uh, when I got back, I started trying to find out what could that be. Nobody knew. There was no information about a fish like that. So I decided, I know where I saw it. I'm going to go back and try to catch it. So my <laughs> second trip, 
I, I went send an Arkansas back. boy named Catfish down there to do a man's job. <laughs> I went to the same place, <laughs> my second trip, and I caught that fish. No way. And it's called a discus ray. It had not been seen or described since the early 1800s. And it turns out there there's more of them than people really knew. Uh, anybody How did you catch who, it? Well, uh I figured it's a ray. I'd caught a lot of big rays in okay, saltwater. Okay, so you knew I knew something about catching about rays. It. I'd caught uh, southern stingrays that were seven or eight feet across, and they lay on the bottom and eat dead stuff. So I put a dead fish on the hook, threw it out on the bottom where I'd seen this fish before, and within fifteen minutes I had it on. No my way! Line. Why didn't uh, something else eat? I mean, like if those well fish or rivers are so full of fish, I mean it's they are pretty and amazing. It's difficult fishing with those kind of baits, but I was just determined. You know, I was going to try to hit the right spot and. Just fortunately, I caught it, and it was like the most incredible fish I've ever seen. When wow. I got back, I decided, well, it needs to be a world record. I wanted to uh, enter it in the record book, and you have to have the fish identified by an expert. Uh, I couldn't find an expert who knew what it was. I had all these great photos of this fish. Mm. None of the ray experts had ever heard of it. Finally, I found a guy in Germany who's a ray expert, and he said, this fish is painted in a book from the very early 1800s it's the same fish i'm i have no doubt in this book it was called a spine-tailed elepasaurus and the wow. picture was identical it had a short tail covered with spikes no like way. a dinosaur you gotta show me this picture uh, yeah for sure it's uh it was an incredible fish and uh it's still the world record that particular fish was about six feet across weighed almost 200 pounds uh and i caught several more <laughs> while i was down there really uh How, I, I can't even imagine reeling in a fish like that like it was it, did they fight oh yeah or is it like dragging yeah. dead well weight? it's kind of like dragging a barn door you know it's uh it's like most rays you know a lot of people who hook a ray uh here in salt water just want to cut the line because it's so difficult to actually land one you know, mm. they're huge and they're flat and they suck up on the bottom and don't want to come up. Uh, this one was on the bottom in eight feet of water. I had to sit there and strum my fishing line to make him mad enough to get off the bottom. And so once, what do you mean? Like, like vibrate the fishing yeah, line? Yeah, you kind of vibrate your really? line like a guitar string and it aggravates them and they'll eventually come up. I'll be darned. And, Is uh, that a ray trick or just a, that's a ray trick. fishing trick? That's a ray trick okay. that I learned uh, in Virginia with some anglers out there. Uh, but when he came up, then I knew I had him. And mm. uh, it, it was an did incredible they, they fish. Him? No, they don't eat them at all. I, I wanted to release this fish alive, but by the time we could get it uh, weighed, I, I took a certified scale with me. By the time we could get to the boat, uh, it had expired, so we yeah. couldn't release it. Yeah. And I asked, you know, can we? Can you eat it? And they're like, no, we're not going to eat that. Mm. Uh, mm. The piranhas ate it, which was pretty incredible, too. All the wow. anglers on the boat came and watched, and we cut it up and fed it to the piranhas. Wow. And uh, that was pretty incredible. In That's an incredible story. What's the, yeah. Say the name of that fish again. Well, now or, or they ray, call them discus ray is the discus name ray. uh and before there had been some small ones in the record book i think 
11 pounds, something like that. Oh, prior to you catching yes, this one. Yes, but it was they were small fish. And the first Nobody one you caught was got, 200 pounds. Yeah, almost 200 pounds. Uh, it was uh, – the whole story was really incredible because it was such a rarity to, you know, to be able to find something – Nobody knew anything about. I was just dumbfounded when I got back, and I'm talking to all these. What Ray year would that have been? Uh, I can't remember for sure, but I believe it was 2001. Maybe. I mean, that's like is it? We're not talking about like the 1960s or something. No, no, you know? no. I mean, so that's amazing to me yeah. that in 2001 they you were. You can still go to Brazil. My last trip, I went to the Shingu River in Brazil, which is in a different area, and uh, we actually caught some catfish there that had never been described by science at all. Wow. Uh, I came back with uh, photos of fish that I needed to get identified, and I found an expert in Massachusetts at uh, Cambridge University who spent his lifetime down there studying fish. And uh, he found out I was going down there. He learned about this big ray. And he said, if you go to Brazil and you could photograph fish, send, send me the pictures. I'd like to see what you're catching. And it turned out some of the fish we caught had never been described by science. The local people knew about them. Yeah. But science didn't know about mm. them. They didn't have a name. Uh, a lot of them were unusual armored catfish. Mm. So, I mean, to imagine you can go out in this day and age and catch something science yeah. doesn't know about. To me, that's, that's, that's incredible. incredible. It's, it you know, fun. if you think about it, though, we live in such a unique time as humans because 75, 80, 100 years ago, that would have been kind of normal, maybe. Sure. I mean, yeah. like, so we, That's we, what we, we, think, we yeah, anyway. we, well, normal in the sense of so much had yet to be discovered. Right. But in the last hundred years, it's like all of a sudden we're sitting in your living room in Arkansas and we've got the world at our fingertips well, you know, and we feel like everything's been discovered. Yeah. And, and it hasn't. And to me, that was always one of my things I loved doing the most was, Finding what's out there here in Arkansas, even I found things over the years nobody knew was here in Arkansas: salamanders and birds mm. and and uh, snakes, even that nobody knew were here. Like what? Uh, <laughs> they're kind of obscure animals, but uh, there was a, a type of worm snake I found uh, when I that was. Uh, they didn't know it was here. Nobody knew it was here. Mm. Uh, and back then, I, I would publish those findings in scientific journals so people would know. Uh, there was a salamander called a mole salamander. Nobody knew we had those here. Mm. Uh, even today, uh, if you dig and read on the Internet, every year there's literally hundreds of animals being discovered nobody knew about at all. Mm. I just did an article recently about just new fish that have been discovered every year. Like worldwide? Yes. Okay. And every year there's several hundred new species being described. Wow. So we're learning more and more. A lot of it has to do with DNA and genetics. Right. We're finding out fish that we thought were all one type of fish are really several species. I see. But sometimes it's something brand new we didn't know about. And yeah. To me, those adventures when I was able to find something 
nobody knew about. That's the coolest thing in wow. the world. That really you know, is. It's really fun. That really is. Well, okay. Segwaying back into Arkansas. You have, uh, I've heard the the lower White River drainage described as the Amazon of the South. Have you ever heard that? Am I saying yeah. that right? Oh, yeah, I've heard that So the too. lower the lower White River drainage would be in eastern Arkansas, be the the White River National Wildlife Refuge. Is that right? Yes. If you hit the lower part, that lower 90 miles is all within the White River National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. Have you fished I, over there much? I, I've spent thousands of hours down really? there. Really? I spent a good part of my career writing things to help protect that area mm, mm. one of the things that opened my eyes going to the amazon was i think probably our rivers here the mississippi the white saint francis i think a hundred years ago they were like those rivers are down there now mm. they've been changed so much by dam building uh by channelization that we almost lost uh, a lot of the flora and fauna in those yeah. areas because of all that. I spent a great part of my career trying to protect the lower White River in particular. Mm. I grew up down there hunting and fishing. I grew up in uh, Cross County in a little town okay. called Cherry Valley. Almost everything we did outdoors was along the lower White River. See, I didn't know that. I wanted to ask you earlier exactly yeah. where you were from in Arkansas. Yep. Uh, okay. I grew up in that little town, and all my uncles uh, liked to fish. I, I grew up in a household without a dad around, but I had a lot of great uncles who took me everywhere and, and mm. taught me to be an outdoorsman. And most of the time when we went somewhere, it was uh, somewhere along the whiter Mississippi rivers. Mm. They liked to crappie fish and catfish, and we spent a lot of time on the Oxbow Lakes fishing. Mm. Uh, and a lot of time out on the big river, too. The Mississippi figured uh, big time into our outdoor exploits. And uh, so I spent a lot of time on those rivers in when I got older and did become a writer and got conservation-minded, there were a lot of things happening that could have uh, really created havoc, particularly along the lower white. What were they trying to do? Well, mostly they were trying to channelize the river. They now, That means where there's where there's bends in the river, they're cutting out those bends to make it easier to travel with barges yeah, and whatnot? More in, in that case, they were trying to deepen the river so barge traffic could go up and down. Okay. Uh, and the lifeblood of that river is the flooding that occurs every three mm. out of five years. Uh, the rivers flood and uh, they overflow their banks. And of course, that's not good if you're a farmer or a landowner or have a home. But in those areas like White River National Wildlife Refuge, that flooding rejuvenates that whole ecosystem every time it happens. A good, for instance, is catfish when the the rivers flood every year they go up into those flooded woods and they gorge on crawfish mm. there's millions and millions of crawfish that are inaccessible to them during a normal year yeah. when it floods the catfish go up and they gorge on these crawfish 
and they have these huge spawns. Mm-hmm. They lay 10 times as many eggs during the flood years because they're able oh. to reach that food source. And so you take that away, and that doesn't You've happen massively anymore. changed the whole yep. uh, structure that's just of that one river. Of the things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so by deepening the river, you would reduce the flooding. You would reduce the You're flooding. You're increasing the yep. volume of that river channel. Exactly. You're, you know, the barge traffic is a good thing, I guess, for for uh, being able to carry goods, you know, from one point to another, particularly farm commodities. Right. But uh, it also it changes that, and you know, I work for a farm organization now. I understand why that's necessary but there's there should also be places that we don't change for that reason and i've always felt like that lower white river basin is one of those places eventually they wound up building a dam at the mouth of the white that really changed a lot but the channelization didn't occur so the damage wasn't as bad as it could have been Mm. Uh, it was a hard fight though i mean uh is any of that still going on yeah, they, you know, it, you got to watch. I guess uh, once they made it a national wildlife refuge, it protected it in some way. Mostly, yeah, for the most part. And like I said, there's about 90 miles of river within the refuge, and uh, and it's fairly well protected. You know, the way you just said that was really good because the, the way I view it, and, and so many people would, but some people wouldn't, is that we live in such a, a time of – the massive spread of civilization and, and the need to fuel these economies that we've sure. kind of propped up. And so like there's 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 these voices that are like the top priority is, you know, finance and and you know, sure. making the river deeper so we can transport our our, our goods. Sure. But sure. and there's there's some of that that's gotta happen. And it's ha- and it's already happened in about 95% of these places. And so right. it's like in 2020 it feels like to me that we've we've got to have some places that are seriously protected. And that's a that's a you know I I love wilderness areas all over the country. Sure. You know and there's there, there's some controversy around wilderness areas which to me is crazy <laughs> that people wouldn't want some designated wilderness, you know. Well, like, I think there we have to compromise sometimes. You, yeah. you try to find a middle of the roadway to allow this to happen while that also happens. Uh, I wouldn't want to say there should never be a barge right, go up right. down the white. That's crazy. But yeah. uh, by the same token, I don't want to see those ecosystems destroyed. One of the things that happened that came along for a while that really helped protect that was supposed sightings of ivory-billed woodpecker. Yeah. Uh, and now, that, that would have been in the early 2000s. Yeah, and that was in uh, the Lower White River area, those streams. Did anything ever come of that? They decided that it was not an ivory-billed woodpecker. <laughs> Nobody really ever decided. There were thousands of people just looking and looking and looking. I, you so, know, so just to give a little bit of history, got people outside of Arkansas wouldn't remember that. Many people may not, but there was, there was a guy – that video did he have video yeah of a uh, big uh, woodpecker that i remember maybe. this like grainy wood this <laughs> grainy film or yeah. maybe it was a photo it was video there were there were 
two brothers, uh, good friends of mine. I know mm. them very well. I'd, I'd actually help take them out so they could okay. look for ivory bills in the White River Refuge with a group of people. And So they had reason to believe that there were some yeah, still around? you know, some of those remote areas, uh, there was always hope. Maybe there was an ivory bill been, somewhere. The last one had been sighted 70 years ago? Yeah, it had well, been a long time. I can't remember the exact number of years, but it had been decades. Uh, the last ones were seen down in Louisiana in a refuge down there. Uh, but there was always hope. Maybe there's some more somewhere. And uh, because I knew White River so well, uh, there was a big group that came with these gentlemen uh, to, to look. And I actually helped take them out to a remote area where they could spend some time looking. And then eventually what happened was, uh, first of all, there was a guy kayaking who uh, said he, he saw an ivory bill. He was just certain. And he took people back there. And these two brothers, they had looked a lot of places. They'd spent a lot of time, thousands and thousands of hours, looking in different areas of the country. Mm. What they would do, they would get in a boat, and they would turn a video camera on, and they would travel. And then they would see what was captured by the video during their days out. And what happened was... They saw something one day that they weren't sure that could be an ivory bill. They sent that video like they'd been doing to Cornell University. Some people there said, yes, that's an ivory bill. Now, there's mm. a lot of controversy. Was it or wasn't it? It's a short little clip. Right. And it could have been. But, uh, you know, and people have said during that time they saw ivory bills as well. Maybe they did. I don't know. Uh, it's I presume possible. they have a. It seems like they had a. They kind of look like a pileated woodpecker, yeah, except they have a yeah. bigger. They're bigger. White and bill. There's some differences in them, but uh, you know, I was always skeptical. I mean, hunters and fishermen been running those bottoms for years. Most of them are good wildlife watchers too. Yeah. Nobody had ever seen one before, and I, I always thought it was doubtful. During that time, I was freelancing full-time. I actually uh, got work taking people out looking. Uh, oh, people are. from all over the world. I took people from England You're like a big South Africa. Yeah, we'd go <laughs> out. I'd tell them, I don't think you'll see one. I'll be glad to take you out and uh, and look, and we'll look hard. Uh, and I did. I took uh, mm. groups out all the time. But uh, nothing ever solid came from right. all that. What happened was, though, for a few years, it was like we got to protect this area because there could be ivory bills. And that kind of slowed the the rush to channelize and change yeah. that area was there any political motivation in that because i can just hear sure. people saying that that was a, a hoax or something yeah you know there were people who literally sat up in tree stands out in those woods for days and days and days watching and i felt like they they thoroughly looked and nothing solid came from it. I wish, and nobody wishes there were ivory bills there more than me because that would be cause to to definitely protect that area forever. Uh, but I don't believe there actually were. Yeah. Uh, but it, it doesn't change the fact it's an amazing area and, and yeah. it needs to be protected.
Yeah. Uh, so what what were you fishing for mainly on the White River? Or, or I know you did a lot of hunting too, but yeah, yeah, over the years. But know, like, what would you uh, were you catfishing on the yeah, White River? Most of the time, we spent catfishing on the Lower White and uh, parts of the Mississippi. Uh, I had some friends who actually had shanty boats. Uh, some of them actually lived in the old shanty boats down tell, on the river. Tell me what that is. A shanty boat's like a houseboat, sort of. It's not a boat you Except motor like another socioeconomic status lower? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, we call the shanty boat folks are river rats, you know. Yeah, they they yeah. live on the river. They make their livings on the river. Mm. Um, a lot of them are commercial fishermen. Uh, they trap. Uh, they're they're the last folks I think who are out there making a living off of Mother Nature. They're almost gone. Uh, eventually, the federal uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, told those people they couldn't stay. And what were they? Commercial fishing. Yeah, most of it was commercial fishing, but eventually uh, there was people who came in charge of White River Refuge and said, "Y'all got to move these boats out. They got to go." Mm. And they made them leave. And uh, there's some of those boats still around, but not many. Mm. Most of those people have passed away. Uh, it, it's a culture. I mean, we could talk for hours just about the shanty boat culture. Mm. When I was a kid, there were thousands of people lived in shanty boats on the river. Is that right? On the White now, would River. This would have been uh, across rivers all across the South. Yeah. But, uh, but oh, I mean, you knew the White River. Yeah, particularly the White I knew. And there were literally almost every little town you came to had its own shanty boat town. Shanty boats are, are like houseboats, but. People don't, they motor them to a place and they stay there. Mm. They don't move. And people actually live on them, you know. They, mm. they come and go off that, the That's boat the boat they'd day. fish off of, though. I mean, yeah, they were pulling yeah. it out and going down the river. Well, mostly they fish off of smaller boats. Okay. That, that you know, they have a dock on the end of those shanty boats, and, and the boat stays in the water all the time. You just jump in your john boat and take off to go fishing. Mm. So uh, when I... Uh, got older some of those people i knew and uh, we spent a lot of time on those shanty boats a lot of my time down there was spent working on some of my books uh those shanty boat folks uh the old river rats helped me uh, uh with a lot of the photography and stuff we did for books and uh, i really hated to see that that culture just i i was kind of there for the end of it it was sad mm. Uh, there were still some of those guys that lived year rounds on the boats and commercial fished and trapped and uh, they just got pushed out by yeah. the federal government and yeah. uh, and they're gone now. I don't think there's many places left. There's a few mm. boats people still use uh, for weekend stuff, but they don't live on them like mm. they used to. Mm. Uh, it, it's a whole nother story. You know, That's incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah, have you written much about that? I've I mean, written there... some. Yeah, you know, folks yeah. can find some stories. I uh, it uh, I spent quite a bit of time researching the history of those folks and 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 telling that story of how that culture died. Uh, I remember uh, down on the lower White River, there's a bridge down there called Benzal Bridge. It's an old uh, railroad bridge, and uh, 
when the feds moved them all out, somebody set that bridge on fire, the old railroad <laughs> tires. You could see it, they oh, said, wow. for 100 miles. And uh, it was just that kind of end game, you know, wow. uh, kind of an end protest to having to move away from there. Wow. Uh, those old river rats. What year did. would that, I mean, would that have been the 80s or 70s or no, 90s? No, no, that was still in the early 2000s. Oh, really? Probably. So yeah. relatively it recently. quite a while. Uh, but finally, those federal guys uh, just got tired of those boats being down there. They made excuses uh, to try to push them out, and they eventually won. It actually went through the court system, even. Uh, oh, those wow. guys tried to stay and just couldn't make it happen. Wow. Wow. Man, that that's interesting. I, I, I've focused so much of my – well, it's, it's where I grew up in western Arkansas in the, in right. the highlands – you know, and so the the Delta world is like a different planet for yeah, me. To me, the Highlands are the different yeah. planet. For me, the Delta's home, and, yeah. and that's where I've spent most of my outdoor life is is in the Delta, in those river bottoms. Yeah, uh, I love going to the river bottoms. I I love places that have cypress trees, and mm. I like getting out on the the big rivers like the Mississippi. Are uh, you still fishing a lot? No, probably not as near as much as I used to. Is it because uh, of work, or is it is it kind of like you focus so a, much on that? It's that... a combination of things. You know, I'm getting older, and my friends are getting older, and uh, uh, work takes does take up a lot of time. I, I just don't go as much as I used to. I still enjoy going, uh, but just to be honest, <laughs> I'm getting old and, and falling apart Uh I had an accident a couple of years ago, and this is a whole nother story, but during work, I was doing photography on a bison ranch. Oh, I read about that, and Keith. I, I got hurt pretty bad by a big bison. It, it was just a total accident, but uh, I got hurt really bad. Yes. And, uh, was I read, laid did up I read about months. that in uh, rural Arkansas? Was yeah, it the, maybe. Uh, yeah, the magazine. Uh, yeah. That stories. So you were, you were, these were like domesticated bison. Yeah, yeah. They, and one of them hooked ranch. you in the back. Well, what happened was uh, the guy. Man, that, we, I just keep un, uncovering these incredible stories. Oh, there's about so you. many fun stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just. You're shooting. the first person I've interviewed that's been mauled by bison. Congratulations. <laughs> I sure didn't want that to happen. Oh, either. man. I was on this ranch in, uh, uh, doing a story about the guy that raised the bison. And he wanted to take me to to take a picture of me with his biggest bison. And uh, I was like, I'd already had some trouble with bison before out west. I'd been run up on my truck one time by a big bull. And I kept telling this guy, I really don't want to do this, get my picture made. And uh, he just kept, oh, everybody gets their picture made. I wouldn't want you to be here and not get your picture made. So I finally agreed to do it. He's feeding the bison range cubes out of his hand and she's standing right in front of me and she put her head down so he could scratch her on the head i mean she was tame as she could be mm. but what happened was she accidentally when she lifted her head up she hooked my belt loop oh, no. with a horn and uh, i mean i saw it happen i knew what was fixing to happen i, I it really horrified me 
And when mm. she felt my weight uh, on her head, she she went crazy. She threw oh, me up no. in the air for a long time. And unfortunately, my Wrangler jeans, the belt loop wouldn't break. I was trying to break it the whole time. And she's throwing me around. <laughs> oh, I hate that head. I'm laughing, Keith. No, no, it's funny now. It wasn't <laughs> oh, funny at no. the time. I when when she got me up in the air on her head and uh, oh, she had no. two horns in my back, one on each side. I just figured I was gone. I mean, it lasted a long time. The guys, so she couldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't get me off. Couldn't get you loose. Uh, that horn got under my belt, and my belt wouldn't break. And I'm trying to get it off. And these two guys both got me by my legs, trying to pull me off, and it just wouldn't happen. And uh, I thought I was okay after it happened. She beat me up pretty bad, but. We looked at all my injuries, and I said, man, I'm just lucky. I think I'm okay. And I actually went back to work and shot more photos and drove no home, way. drove 100 miles back home. No but as way. I got close to Little Rock, all these injuries, uh, I went into shock. I had to call my wife and said, I'm going to come by. You're going to have to take me to the emergency room. Oh. And uh, What year was that? That was uh, 15, 16, 17. That was just a couple of years ago. 17. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was both good and bad. The The bad news was I, I was wrecked. I mean, uh, I was laid up for four months recovering from oh, that. No. The good news was when they took me in and scanned me, the doctor said, you should go kiss that buffalo because she saved your life. And I said, I really don't feel that way. Explain <laughs> that. He said, well, you've got cancer on one of your kidneys. You probably never would have known if oh, you had come goodness. in here. So <laughs> I said, okay, what does that mean? He said, I will pop that kidney out. And you'll be good as new. But he said, if you had not come in here for some reason, you'd have probably never known and you'd wow. have died from that cancer. Wow. And so, you know, it's good news, bad news. Uh, they, Saved they, by Buffalo Mall. <laughs> exactly. They took that kidney out, and I'm good as new now. But I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite as good as I yeah, was. It's pretty and, traumatic. Uh, it, so did she break bones? Me. No, I didn't break any bones, but uh, I, I was in pretty bad shape. Did she draw blood? Yeah, she eventually So a horn did. was in uh, you. Yeah, one in each side. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. I I saw all this happening in my head, and I was able to get a hold of those horns, and I rode it and and just kept her from goring me, I, you know, just by sheer How long brute. do you – How like, was it 10 seconds? Was it? <laughs> I, I went back and asked the guys that were holding on to my legs trying to get me off. I said, it felt to me like it was an hour, and they said, it was way longer than an eight-second eight rodeo ride. <laughs> I said, well, how long do you think it was? And they said, you were probably up there for a whole minute at least. Wow, that's a long time. And I mean, time. she was beating me up pretty bad. So that's it, it a was just a pure story. accident. But, you know, thank God or I, I wouldn't be here now maybe. Uh, that's yeah. what the doctors think. So some things happen for a reason, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I had never felt quite the same. It, it's mm. a little more difficult doing stuff uh it's hard sitting a boat all day yeah you know my back causes me problems but i'm okay really you know yeah. the doctors say i'm all healed up but that has slowed me down so i'm just getting old I, I really have played hard all my life i've done all this 
wonderful stuff. Uh, got no regrets. You know, I decided years ago I want to live life to the fullest. My mother died when she was 40. My dad died when he's in his early 50s. Mm. I always thought, I got until I'm 40, maybe. Her dad died when he was 40. Mm. And I thought, I better get everything done by the time I'm 40 because my genetics is not so good. Mm. So that's one reason I did all these things, and I went all these places. And uh, I'm just fortunate I've lived a lot longer than my parents did. But I've gotten to do so many incredible things, and uh, it's just been a wonderful life, and a lot of it uh, happened because of my writing and uh, being able to meet the right people. And uh, I've had really good friends that have taken me lots of good places. I've explored all over this hemisphere, and I've even been some in Europe and Asia. I hadn't made it to Africa or Australia yet, but someday maybe. Hmm. Uh, I've got sons. Now, my wife and I have six sons together. Oh, they're all grown. I didn't know that, Keith. Yeah, they're, uh, they're now, I've travelers. I've seen one of your – well, maybe multiple sons. But <laughs> over the year, I would have told you that you had – a son, because I've seen yeah. a picture of you with one boy, you know, one of the boys. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they're all grown now. Two, Six boys. Yeah, I'll be two done. of them live next door, but two of them have really uh, spent a lot of time all over Asia. One of my sons right now lives in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, one of my other sons has been to close to 20 countries, I think, mm. in Asia. He married a young lady from China, and they travel all over the world. Uh, so they're, mm. uh, they're travelers, too. Somehow that bug bit them, and it's fun seeing what they do. They enjoy yeah. uh, going to all these exotic destinations. So my goal is I hope I can retire in a couple of years, Maybe I could spend more time with them, seeing some of the things they're seeing now yeah. that I haven't seen. What um, do you? So, what 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 do you want to do that you haven't done, Keith? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Uh, there's so many places in the world I'd like to go see. I love South America, I really do, and I'd like to spend months and months down there exploring. Mm. Uh, I'd like to go back to Brazil. Uh, I love the Amazon and Brazil and some of those rivers, and I've made some really, really good friends down there during mm. my time down there. I want to go back and spend time with them. Uh, some of them are big fishermen. That, that That's all they do all the time. Now, would your these future travels after retirement, would they involve fishing? Oh yeah, definitely. So okay, you so know, that's yeah, still there's sure. still a, a drive. Oh in yeah, there. yeah. I, you know, uh, work keeps me from going as much as I'd like to now. Uh, but when I took this job at Farm Bureau, I was able right off the bat. I went down and spent some time in Costa Rica, which was amazing, a whole another amazing place. Uh, and there's a lot of places, you know, from Mexico south that mm. I'd like to spend more time. Yeah. Some that I've been to and some that I haven't. Yeah. Uh, it's just an incredibly different world down there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's more difficult now, maybe. And now with COVID-19, yeah. who knows? You it's can't really tough. go places for a while. Uh, so I don't know what will happen, how it will all shake out. 
But it's kind of like 9-11 when it came along right. and it stopped so much. Yeah. we uh, It changed the whole world. I mean, uh, 9-11 was a, a big disaster for so many people. And it changed everything and what, how we do things. But eventually we got past it. Yeah. I think COVID-19 like has changed that. the world. We're going to do things different afterward, but we'll get to a point we all want to be able to do those things. We want to be connected to our friends and people that even that we don't know in other countries. So we'll get past it eventually. Yeah. And uh, I hope by that time I'm retired and maybe I can spend some more time uh, yeah. traveling around and doing some fishing. Well, I've got uh, I've got two things I want to do before we before we close, I want to talk to you a little bit about catfishing, and then I want to hear your bear story. Okay. Okay. Here, I've got some a couple of specific catfish questions. What's the biggest catfish you've ever caught? Well, big, I, I, in 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 the states, in the U.S., the yeah. biggest one I've ever caught is uh, close to fifty pounds in Alabama. I was with my wife Theresa, and uh, we were fishing with a young man named Mike Mitchell, who. At the time, nobody knew who Mike was, but some friends and I uh, got hitched up with him. He was getting started in the guiding business. And Mike took Theresa and I out, and uh, we fished on Wilson. And, uh, oh, gosh, I'm going to go blank. Another big uh, Tennessee River lake down there that Mike liked to fish. Uh, and he put me on a big blue cat while we were down there mm. that was right at 50 pounds. I think it was 47. And this is catching on a rod and reel. Yeah, this was rod and reel. What'd you catch it on? Uh, caught it on a big skipjack. Uh, mm. Skipjack Harry. Live one or bait. dead one? Uh, we what? were using dead bait that day for these okay, fish. For the blue cats. Uh, Theresa caught some big blues that day too, including several over 30 pounds. What would you say just, and I realize you've spent your whole life writing about this stuff, so it's hard to narrow it down, but what would you say on a river where you gonna catch catfish? Uh, Mississippi. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, like a river feature. Oh, like, yeah, so like, yeah, like yeah. If on, like if there's a five mile stretch of river yeah, or sure. a mile stretch, where are you gonna catch a catfish? Well, probably the best place in my mind, from what I've learned, is fishing those outside bends of the river where trees topple in. You know, okay. it erodes. Like a cut and, bank. Yeah, like, a big cut bank on the outside bend where trees are toppled in the water. It's hard to beat that really? most of the time because uh, uh, the the current's hitting that pretty hard. Carrying in hits it, carrying in stuff and stuff in there. That got some cover, eat, and they got covered a lion. So you can catch both big blues and big flatheads. What in would those you do? Areas. You'd 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 go in there and fish with the bobber, fish on the bottom. Yeah, it's hard to fish those areas a lot of times uh, because of that current and everything. But I like to fish with a bobber that's about the size of an orange. <laughs> and uh, put okay. a dead bait under that, and that way I can see what my bait's doing and get it in the spots I want it. Yeah, and that bobber keeps it from getting tangled so bad. Okay, that's me. That you okay. know, that's the. How many poles would you have out? Just ideal. No, ideally day. one. <laughs> really, it's you hard. wouldn't put out five or six. No, it's hard to do that. Now you can drift fish or. Uh, do what people call bumping now, which is 
drifted in a bait along those rough river bottoms where you're moving and drifting okay. all the time, okay. then you can fish multiple poles. But if you want to fish those areas that's got the cover in it, if you fish more than one, you're just going to get hung up all the time. So yeah. I like to fish with one pole, keep it in my hand, don't put it in the rod holder. But there, there's literally dozens and dozens of places we could talk about that are good right well uh, that that's you did exactly what i wanted and i've okay. got a confession here uh when uh so growing up hank williams jr song country boy can survive there's a line in there where it says we can catch catfish all day long yep. me and my buddy chris roberts in high school we always <laughs> we we could fulfill a lot of that song but we could not catch catfish all day long and that was always like a thorn in our side but I love to catfish, and I've never good, really good. dedicated a lot of. I've never dedicated a lot of time. So much of my outdoor world has been dedicated to big game hunting. You know right, that right. I've never. But I've always been fascinated with catfish. Love catfish. Love to eat. as much as I love to fish. I love to eat catfish. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm wanting to do more big game hunting. I haven't done a lot of big game hunting. I never was. I'd like to someday say I've killed a pronghorn. Yeah. That's number one on my mm. list. Maybe moose is number one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to uh, to hunt elk. Mm-hmm. I've never done that. Uh, you know, I keep hoping I'll get that tag here that in Arkansas. That Arkansas tag, yeah. I just got another, uh, my second alligator tag here in wow. Arkansas, and I'll do that in September. Uh, some friends and I are lining up a trip. I, I got a tag uh, several years ago. It's, it was during one of the first hunts. And got about an eight foot gator, but we're mm. going to hunt again this year. So oh, that's neat. kind of exciting to get a second opportunity. I never dreamt yeah. that would happen, but yeah. it yeah. did. Uh, hey, that's great. Um, bear story. Now, I see, okay, I have probably, well, I think this is true. As a kid growing up in Arkansas, reading Arkansas Sportsman Magazine, which is pretty much the only at least mainstream maybe there were other publications i wasn't aware of but when i went to walmart in the town i lived in i would see arkansas sportsman's magazine and you wrote a lot for them yeah i and, started with them when they first came out that yeah. was my second place i ever sold a magazine article okay they came out in the early 80s and uh uh, they stuck with me ever since and let me write for them. But, I still do some writing for them. Mostly that was the first but. organization I ever sold an article to. Great. As yeah, a, it's a, a good, good magazine. 08 or 09 or something. Folks love uh, Arkansas Sportsman. Well, it's Game and Fish now, I Game think. And fish, Arkansas yeah. Game and Fish. Uh, but it's a great magazine. Yeah. And people love it. Well, I remember seeing a picture, and I think it was in that magazine, of you with a bear. You killed a bear in Arkansas. Yeah, uh, no, not in Arkansas. Was it not? I, it was in uh, New Brunswick, Canada. I'll be darned. Well, uh, maybe. Okay, yeah. well, tell me that story. I, see, well, I, my, as a little kid, <laughs> I guess I associated you with Arkansas. I saw you yeah. with a bear, and I knew you wrote about bear. I actually bought one of your books the other day for a reference and something that I'm writing. Ah, I bought the Arkansas hunting book. Yeah, uh, yeah. That just has all the the different different sections about every game species that we can hunt i've always been interested in the history of bear hunting in arkansas that's why i bought the book called the bear state you know and uh, there's some interesting stories that go along with it Uh, i used to read that there were fifty thousand bears in arkansas at one time yeah and uh, i thought 
that's kind of str- I don't think that's right. Uh, there's only 50,000 square miles in Arkansas. That would be a bear every square mile. And I asked Jim Spencer, who worked with me at Game of Fish one day, you ever thought about that? That can't be right, Kenny. He said, it's not right. I made that up a long time ago. I said, why would you make that up? He said, I had a, I had a reporter that wanted me to tell him how many bears were in the state, and he wouldn't leave me alone. So I just made something up. You've just crushed my dreams here. I'm sorry, but that's true. That's a true story. <laughs> well, hey, okay, Jim now Spencer that, made that I'll up. I'll be darned. Well, but, I think there's some validity to that, though. Well, there were lots of bears in yeah. Arkansas. They yeah. were a big commodity when right, the, right. during the time of settlement in this state. Uh, people killed bears for for their meat, but more for their oil. They used right. they rendered that bear you see fat. The, you see this what's on my hat here? Yeah, yeah. For bear sure. grease. You know, bear grease is something really good. You know, folks say that's the best thing there is to make pies and biscuits and all that. And frying catfish. That's yeah, what I use it for, catfish. Keith. Yeah. For real. Lubing your muzzle loader. Uh, patches, you know, there's all yeah. kind of things that we used for back then. Oil trough in Arkansas got its right. name from them shipping uh, the the oil out in logs out of that town. Yeah, my bear story is a little bit different. Uh, I never dreamt I could even hunt them in Arkansas because when I was first hunting, there weren't any bears. Right now, we got thousands, and uh, I haven't really hunted them here in Arkansas. Not intentionally. Uh, I've seen a lot of bears. I've photographed bears, but I've never hunted a lot. But my wife, Theresa, when we got married, one of the things she told me is, I want a bearskin rug someday. Mm. I said, well, if I ever get a chance, I'll I'll go. And I don't know, I mentioned it to a friend one time. He said, well, I'm fixing to go to New Brunswick. Why don't I see if uh, you can go with me? And I said, let's do it. And so uh, he had connections through uh, the tourism agency up there that got us up to New Brunswick on a uh, hunt. Gosh, I can't remember how long ago it's been. It's been quite a while. Yeah. But uh, we went up. Uh, it was the hardest hunt I've ever been on. It, it, hmm. Bears were the hunt, hardest animal I've ever hunted by hmm. far. Hmm. Uh, now, I've only been on the one hunt, though. Yeah. I went up, and uh, we spent – Gosh, I don't know. We were up there for days, uh, and we were hunting over bait. Yeah. I saw a lot of bears, but getting a shot at one was a whole nother story. They are so keenly attuned to everything. Every time I'd see a bear, it was a part of a bear. It was a paw or an ear or a little patch of fur, and then they'd be gone. And uh, I just had the hardest time. I was smoking during that time, and I quit smoking just so I could get her a bearskin rug. (laughs) But I still, I couldn't get a shot on these bears. And finally, on my last day up there, uh, I was in a stand, and this bear finally presented a shot. At first, I didn't feel like it was a good shot, and I didn't want to injure an animal. I never do. And so I passed and i sat literally watching this bear for almost an hour before i felt like i had the right shot and when i had some good patience I, I was hunting with a muzzleloader 50 caliber muzzleloader that's what i took to hunt with because i wanted 
to kill the bear when I shot it. And I thought that gives me a good chance. And I was comfortable with that rifle. And I had about a hundred yard shot on this bear. And uh, she presented finally a good shot. And I shot and she dropped in her tracks. Mm. And I was just ecstatic. I was just like, oh my God, thank goodness. Because it was my last day. Yeah. And so first thing I did was light a cigarette and sat there and smoked it and looked at that bear and I was just proud, proud, proud and I lit another cigarette and sat in that stand and watched. She didn't move and then suddenly she came back to life. But she was gone and it's dark and I got to leave at six in the morning Mm. and I said, we got to find this bear. I know that bear's got to be dead. And so we walked around with flashlights. The bear wasn't dead. And when mm. I shined a light in this brush, she jumped up at me, scared me half to death, and I shot her again. Mm. That time I killed her. But it just boggled my mind that could happen. Yeah. And so I wrote this story. It was called The Iron Bear. And it's about how you as a hunter, if you're going to hunt, eventually you're going to have an animal that doesn't die. We all have picked up a a quail and felt its heart still beating or a rabbit that screamed and, you know, but if you're a hunter, you got You're going to have to deal with that. Eventually I spent all that time trying to be sure that didn't happen, but it happened. Yeah. And it, and it just was a horrible thing, but as a hunter, you're going to have to deal with that right. eventually. Right. And unfortunately, that bears what happened to me. The bear's laying in there in front uh-huh. of my fireplace. She got her rug, but it was a, the hardest hunt I've ever had in uh-huh. a lot of ways and one of the most memorable. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad I got to do it, got to do it. I don't know if I had an opportunity, I'd probably hunt here in Arkansas. I'd love to say I got an Arkansas bear. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it's hard to hunt Arkansas bears, I know. You've yeah. done it. You know yeah. more than most folks. That's yeah. a tough hunt. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, it's it's really been a pleasure. Been very much so a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, and it's I, I think fun. we it's uh, fun. I think we discovered, uh, or at least I discovered <laughs> a bunch of stuff I didn't know about well, you and some uh, great stories and maybe uh, someday Keith, we'll do it the opposite and i can learn some more about you clay but <laughs> i've enjoyed visiting with you for sure well i i feel like i've been enriched talking with you i mean you've well, uh good. I you've, hope so. you've you've dedicated your life to the outdoors and communication and and uh, and uh you've dedicated your life to a craft you know and that's easy for me to see and uh that's i think that's a valuable valuable thing and uh uh, i haven't told anybody else this yet but in two weeks covid really messed my year up because i just learned i was fixing to be inducted into the legends of the outdoors hall of fame oh that's a big deal to me but it's been canceled this year because of covid19 so now is that a for for arkansas or is that that a national it's a national organization uh it's uh, run by a friend of mine named gary mason uh, who's from tennessee and uh man there's just some incredible folks Mm. who've been inducted before and when i found out it, I found out before COVID, and then we just found out they got to cancel. But that's a huge, huge honor to me. Mm. A lot of uh, my mentors and people I look up to are are part of that 
uh, Hall of Fame. And yeah. to find out next year, if everything goes well, uh, I'll get inducted into that. That'll be well, congratulations. a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Well, thank you, Keith. It's uh, It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to talking with you more in the future. Yeah, for sure. well, thanks for coming to visit. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. You bet you, for sure. Thanks, Clay. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.